0: Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, our podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories, talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you along. I'm your co-host Brent Hinson. Today, we have a guest that's gonna provide insight on a series of rape and sexual assault cases that occurred over the course of several months uh, very close to where I call home base here in West Tennessee. It's a case I remember very well. So I'm interested in hearing his uh, perspective and thoughts on it. It's very unusual for such a rural area that we live in. But uh, before we bring him in, allow me to introduce our host. He is a 23-year veteran of the Novi Police Department and the Detroit metro area. He is Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing great today. How are you
0: Uh, doing very well? This is a case I've been really looking forward to talking about for quite some time. I remember uh, my wife worked in the area where these cases were happening, and I know a lot of the women were very, very uh, concerned with uh, you know the events that were happening during this time i think it was back in 2009 so i want to get some perspective on this
1: i think it's going to be incredibly interesting because uh, most people when they start the police academy there's like this core group of people that they would like to be able to arrest during their career you know a bank robber a murderer and a rapist because th- these are the most heinous crimes when we think about it uh, so i'm excited to hear about this case right here. Uh, So let's go ahead and get started. What can you tell us about uh, our
2: guest today?
0: Well, our guest today has worked for the Martin, Tennessee Police Department since 1995 and was just promoted to captain in the Criminal Investigations Division just a couple of weeks ago in early November. He's a 2021 graduate of the FBI National Academy, Session 281, and he served as one of the lead investigators on the quote-unquote big-bellied rapist case that we're talking about today it is our pleasure to welcome captain james hatler to the podcast how are you sir i'm
2: doing fine sir thank you for having me
0: thank you for
1: joining us captain uh congratulations on your promotion that, that's a big deal that's a big jump there from uh lieutenant up to captain well thank you so much i really do appreciate it
2: although all
1: captain positions are are important i think today we're going to see the importance of the investigations division uh in our agencies because uh the road they do a lot of stuff the detectives they dive into some really bad stuff. A lot of times, a really long-term stuff. So I'm excited to talk to you about that.
2: Well, this this case was, it was a, I don't know if you would say a, a turning point in my career, but I would have to say it was certainly one of the highlights in my career. Uh, there was a lot of things we learned from this case that, you know, lessons learned. And uh, some things that we did good, some things we didn't do so good on. Uh, it was a learning experience.
1: I think if we look at our careers, as the opportunity to learn, and, and for not only us to get better, but for our agencies, I, I think that that's the best way to go about
2: it. Well, oh, I agree. I agree 110%. I mean, you, you cannot prepare for everything. Nope. And I mean, you can train, uh, you can practice, you can do everything that you can do, but it until you get put in the middle of a situation, because there's so many variables that go into each case, and it's uh, it's it's tough. This case right here was one of the toughest cyber work
1: let's go back in time just a little bit let's talk about James when he first got into law enforcement what brought you to this profession what drew you to it
2: well you know I've always had a great deal of respect for law enforcement officers Uh, I never had any intentions of being a police officer uh i was uh working uh, here in martin and i had a friend of mine who was on the police department and he asked me one day if uh, we were talking about jobs and and careers and he asked me if i had ever given any thought about being a police officer and i told him no i hadn't and uh so he talked me into it so i put my application in and uh you know it it worked out and then when i got into law enforcement i never had any uh, intentions of becoming a detective That, that was the furthest thing from my mind but then uh, as time progressed, I wanted to. I, I thought I wanted to take a stab at it. That's how. I, that's how it all got started. I started actually started working. Uh, child spent most of my time working child abuse cases.
1: Those are tough ones too. Yes. Sir. And, and In fact, we just had a recent guest on here, James Isaacs, that, that that he investigated those types of cases, and he shared with us the toll that that can take on the people that are charged with the investigation did you also find that to be true
2: that's very true one of the first cases i ever worked was a 16 month old boy who uh, was uh, suffered severe head trauma at the hands of a care provider uh, by a stepmother and uh, and i can tell you from personal experience you know, that no that was not an eye-opener that how, how people can mistreat children, it, it's still, you know, we could sit here and talk for hours about what causes it and, and uh, why people do what they do. But when you see people mistreating children, it does take a adverse effect. on
1: You them. know, you talked about turning point in your career and highlights and stuff like that. And it's it's interesting because for my career, the cases that mattered the most to me were ones that involved kids in one fashion or another. And, and unfortunately, yeah. most of the time it was in a bad way and yes. you also uh during here recently you you were able to attend the national academy from the fbi how was that experience for you
2: it, it was uh it was a wonderful experience and you know i've been planning on trying to to get to quantico for several years and uh, it just there was a couple of times where i had the opportunity to go but it wasn't just it wasn't a good time for me uh, in my personal life so when uh, chief teal allowed me to go uh, this last time uh, it was uh, it worked out great. It's a wonderful experience. I met so many good people from all over the world. Uh, the training is top notch. It's just any law enforcement officer who gets an opportunity to go to the National Academy needs to do so.
1: As wonderful it is, because you mentioned that it didn't always work out for you personally. I mean, that's an investment from you personally. It's an investment from your agency allowing you to go for that amount of time. But that's an, that, that's a cost for you.
2: It is. It, it's. I mean. Anytime you take an employee and you send them anywhere for ten weeks, you're paying salary, you're paying expenses, the, the travel. You know you are making an investment in this Louis. And I will tell you that I've had two opportunities in my career to go to, to trainings that are ten weeks in duration. I went to the National Forensics Academy in 2012, and then I went to the National Academy back earlier this year. And I can tell you, it's uh, they they make an investment in you, and uh, they've been Martin Police Park's been very good to me. I've I've worked under three chiefs. Every one of my chiefs were very good to me and and, uh, always saw to it that people down here got the uh, training that they needed.
1: Because without training, we're not going to get the results that that our community deserves.
2: You're exactly right, and I, and and it starts at the very top. You, you've got to have forward thinking police chiefs. And JD Sanders, uh, he hired me back in '95, and and he never hesitated if I wanted to go to a training. He would always see to it that I would get to go. Uh, he encouraged uh, us to always try to strive to to maybe someday get to the National Academy. He was a graduate of the National Academy. Chief David Moore was a, the same way. He always to it that we went we got to go to the trainings that we wanted to go to if it was possible and he was a national academy graduate and and he was a big supporter of the national academy uh, and then chief teal uh, is also a national academy graduate and he saw to it that uh, i got to go uh, earlier this year
1: and we'll get into the specifics of the case coming up here in just a minute but earlier you talked back about lessons learned the truth of the matter is without the proper training there would have been a whole lot more lessons that had to be learned during the investigation rather than learning them in training because that's what training prepares us for is the application in the field
2: you're exactly right i mean the the training does help there's no question about that i think one of the biggest things that, that i got out of that this particular case is looking back and seeing how every case has basically a nexus and i mean it there's a hinge point where it turns and where you know you're on the right track and you you identify the suspect you you gather the evidence when it's made available you know if you can find the evidence sometimes you can't and and that's that's discouraging. But on the other side of that, so when you look at cases in retrospect, and you start working backwards, going back to the beginning, you know the outcome at the end. That's great. But you got to look back and say, okay, what did we do right, and what did we do wrong? And that's where, and that's how, and what you did wrong is how you become
1: better. Absolutely. And I don't know how you are personally. I, I can tell you that me personally, I was very critical. Of the way in which I handled cases, and I had my partner who's been on this podcast with us before, and Vic said, "Mike, you know, when, when you look back in hindsight, there's a lot more information that's available to you that perhaps you didn't have at the time, and it may not be the, directly related. At the end of the case, you see how everything ties together; it's a coherent mm-hmm. story. But but when yeah. you're working the case, you have a bunch of unconnected events, unconnected pieces of evidence. I always tell people that." Trying to conduct an investigation oftentimes is like trying to do a puzzle, except you don't have a picture of what the puzzle looks like at the at the end, and in many cases the 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 pieces are turned upside down, so you don't even get to see that little that little piece of the picture. And from an investigation standpoint, when, when you first became an investigator, uh, would would it be safe to say that that you were gung ho. I mean, that you were ready to go out there and solve every case and put a lot of bad people in jail. I think any
2: time that you begin something new, that's just like in when you first graduate out of the police academy. I think everybody goes through a gung ho period. I was I had 12 years on the force whenever I became an investigator. Um, I was a supervisor in patrol when I became an investigator. And one of the reasons that I became an investigator was because, uh, and I'll just be 100% disclosure here, uh, you know, I got tired of supervising uh, folks in patrol and having to, to do the personnel stuff. And, I, I, you know, I've always considered myself kind of a self-motivated person. So when I moved into, into CID, uh, I was responsible just for me and i could go out and i was you know if i was my boss gave me something to do i went and did it and i came back and documented it accordingly and tried to work my work my cases and that was you know that was kind of neat and it was it was kind of it was kind of refreshing and a and a nice break from from dealing with uh, the personnel and then
1: supervise same field but 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 it's done differently i found in investigations that it allowed me to utilize my strengths you know, again, referencing my, my old partner, Vic, uh, we were partners for a long time, but we had very different strengths and, and working investigations allowed us to maximize those strengths more than perhaps we had been able to do on the road.
2: I've always found that, that one thing that I always enjoy doing is sitting and, and interviewing people. That's one of the, that's always been one of my strengths is and I focused on trying to learn how to interview uh, people and and be effective at it. I'd like to think that I'm effective at it, but you know, because well, I mean, over the years, we've gotten a lot of confessions that admissions of crime, but uh, that was, that right there to me was, was gathering evidence and making sure it's processed correctly and, and interviewing people was two of the things that I enjoy the most.
1: It, it, it's like a chess game, isn't it?
2: Yes. Absolutely. It's just like a chess game. And it's uh, it,
1: it, it, it's challenging. I mean, it, it's almost it's almost disappointing sometimes if you get that easy confession. It's like, well, I, I didn't have to try too hard at that. You know, I, I wanted to play the game a little bit.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, and, you know, to set out to, to go in a room where you've met, you know, you're, there's a complete total stranger in there. And in a, a period of time, sit out, build a rapport with them and help them. Uh, come to terms with whatever wrong they've done, uh, and get them to uh, uh, to confess and, and get them to take ownership and res- take responsibility. You know, I, you hear the term interrogation, uh, and I I don't like that term. I, I've never liked to inter- I don't interrogate people. I, I like to sit and talk to them, like and and try to treat them like I want to be treated. Uh, just like if, if somebody, uh, you know, was, was talking to me, I, I, I try to treat them with respect and take, uh, take the time to, uh, uh, help them, uh, take ownership for the wrong.
1: Maybe your experience was different, but, but I found, uh, that there was a certain art aspect of that. And it was one of those things that, that you, you practice and practice doesn't make perfect, but it does make you better. It equips you with more more avenues that you can go down during that interview process.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that, and one of the reasons that I, you know, I always tried to focus on interviewing was because of the kids. Uh, you know, if we c the most one of the biggest things that I always uh, I try to do is I've had a child sex, abuse, especially a child sex abuse victim. Uh, the importance of getting that uh, confession is so great because uh, this this helps validate what the child says and it also helps eliminate keeping that child from having to take that witness stand and testify
1: absolutely uh,
2: you know you know we do have to have we do have to have our children testify in a courtroom from time to time. And, and, and I understand it's a required process of the, of the, of of criminal procedure and, and, and dealing with uh, the the court issues. But, you know, if you can, if you can sit down with someone who has uh, who has mistreated a child and get them to take ownership of it, and if it takes the burden off that child, uh, then and helps give closure to the family. That that to me is what it's all about.
1: Th- that's a win right there. That's a win all that's- around. And, and, and I, I will share this uh, with you. One of the things that I was always concerned about and not that it's not that it's nearly as uh, commonplace as the media likes to portray it. But I wanted to be good at what I did because the job of an investigator is to find the truth. And sometimes the truth, it exonerates people. And and I don't I don't want on my conscience that that someone goes to jail because I failed to do my job incorrectly, because that would be just as devastating in my opinion.
2: I couldn't agree with you more. I, I have I've always been a firm believer, you know, that you know you look at the uh you look at the the scales of justice, they should always be balanced. And the police have a responsibility to protect the rights of the accused as much as they do the rights of the victim and we are the ones that are in charge of making sure that those scales stay balanced and uh, and you're exactly right the last thing that I would ever want to do is arrest someone especially uh, you know in an allegation against a you know involving child abuse uh accus- falsely accusing someone of doing, harming a child or doing something I mean there's no no worse stigma in the world no than, that, you know, so that's, that, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot, of, and it takes a lot. And, you know, the thing about it is that you just can't, you just can't stress it enough the, because like I said, uh, you're dealing with people's reputations, you're dealing with their livelihoods and you're dealing with their liberties. And I think that's uh, one of the most uh was one of the most important things is is to make sure
1: you're right it's a heavy responsibility but but it's also one of the most rewarding things that you can do in law enforcement is to be that person and i loved your analogy right there the scales of justice uh, being balanced right there and that's our job and if you're able to accomplish that then then we can go home and sleep at night and we can be proud of what we've done and we can look back in retrospect and say, you know what? I did what was right. I did what was expected of me.
2: Well, you're exactly right, and that, and and that, and you know that even goes so far as to say, I mean, if if we can't prove, we we you know we can arrest on probable cause. But I tell my guys back there that we don't work our cases to probable cause. We work our cases to guilt beyond a reasonable doubt,
0: Absolutely. and
2: that's because that's that's where you need to be. You know, in order to, because there's so many things that benefit from that, for example, I mean, just like I was saying earlier that if you can, if you can build a strong enough case where it never even sees a, a trial and they plead, then you, you know, you've protected the child, you've protected the family and they can put closure on this situation and go on with their lives.
1: Well, and there's there, there's also another component to it. And I loved how you put it there. We're not working at probable cause. We're working at proof beyond a reasonable doubt because the state, the people, we get one shot at a conviction. If they're found not guilty, we have this this concept, this principle called double jeopardy. And right. and, and so we have to work in that beyond reasonable doubt because if we take the shot. And they are, in fact, a, a guilty party, but they're found not guilty that society is going to pay a price potentially.
2: Well, you're exactly right. You know, that's one thing. And that's another thing that we, we do here is we have a really good working relationship with our attorneys general uh, and our attorneys general. We stay on the phone with them all the time because we keep them apprised of what we're doing and, and they know what we're doing on these cases and they don't mind talking to us. And, you know, it's not it's not uncommon at all for us. To maybe talk to them two or three times a week on different cases uh, and, and, and it's important because they they know what we're doing and they give us guidance and direction because they have to defend what we do they're our attorney and so we have to we have to keep them apprised of what, what's going on
1: i think that's a little bit sad in society right now is that in many parts of the country in many jurisdictions there's almost an adversarial relationship between the police agencies and the prosecutors district attorneys the attorney general's office and we all should be about finding the truth and we all have a different part in it
2: yeah we're we are, we're all on the same team and i'll tell you we you know we we just recently had a uh, an election where our attorneys general who has been attorneys attorney general here for 30 years tommy thomas retired and assistant district attorney colin johnson was elected in his place And it was wonderful because, you know, General Thomas had always been right there for us and had had, had always uh, helped us. And so, you know, uh, assistant district attorney, uh, Johnson, uh, stepped right up after the election and, and took, took over for general Thomas. And so the relationships are all still there. You know, there's, and it was, well, it's just, it's just great. That's just, that's why I
1: put it. Well, well let's talk about that because they're, they're part of the team that we're going to talk about today on this case. So, so how was it that, that you, that your agency came to be involved in this investigation?
2: Well, it all started uh, for us back on the 24th day of July. Ironically enough, I was sitting in the, on a witness stand in a, in a, uh, in a hearing uh, at the Wigley County Courthouse when the patrol captain called me and, uh, and told me that they, there had been a, a break-in over on uh, Bow Drive. And uh, he had asked us to, to come over there and assist. And so once I got freed from court, I went over there and spoke to the victim.
1: And, and and what had transpired in this particular break-in?
2: Well, in that particular, it, you have to understand, um, you know, when we initially got there, she just stated to us that she'd been gone all night and she'd come home that morning and she found a guy in her house and he was sitting basically in the living room on a footstool uh, and she, he had her laptop out. And was looking at pictures on her laptop. And uh, I, apparently, when she walked in the door, uh, he got behind the door. So when she walked in, all she saw was the computer was on, and she thought that was odd. Well, then when she shut the door, there he was, and he had a gun. And so that's that's how that all got started.
1: And, and what was what was this particular victim? What, was she assaulted during this during this encounter?
2: At first, uh, she told us that. Uh, he just, uh, he took her, tied her up, uh, asked her for her valuables and you know just made some statements about uh, some of her personal effects inside the house. And then once he tied her up, uh, then he told her to wait 10 minutes uh, before she called anybody. Um, the problem was during that first, I believe it was in that first interview uh he said something uh, she was telling me and and it really struck her nerve uh, she said that the guy uh, told her, her to interlock her fingers and you know that when he got ready to leave he said if you report this as a burglary i will get less time you know and so and that your insurance company will take care of your stolen you know? and so he was making he was making statements using words that were a little concerning
1: interlocking is not something that you hear a whole lot in regular conversation
2: no, and, and, and reporting the reporting the incident as a burglary you know it's just that who uses that cops use that so that's when we started talking when we we continue to interview but still you know I had no reason to doubt what she was saying, but in the back of my mind, I talked to my chief about it and, and, and he thought the same thing. He said, you, you know, do you think that she was sexually assaulted? And I said, you know, I think there's a possibility, but for some, but we don't have any proof of that. So anyway,
1: yeah, but but I think it's important for our listeners that, that maybe don't understand this is that interviewing victims is one of the most difficult, things to do because there are a lot of times where they feel and, and it's and it's not justified but a lot of times they will feel guilt about what has happened or they're mm-hmm. embarrassed about what has happened and, and, and i mean it's it's personal and, and it's a very difficult mm-hmm. thing for them to talk about
2: yeah we uh we were so convinced that of the possibility was there that she may have been sexually assaulted we talked to her we talked to her parents about it uh, you know, we just said, hey, you know, if there's something that she has not told us or she's holding back, because I interviewed her for I don't know, probably an hour and a half, and then uh, about a week later, we took her, we took that laptop over and had it examined to see what files were being accessed, and most of the files that were being accessed at that time were pictures of her friends, her her female friends that were in college with her, and uh, so I got we had a we had a, a female uh, officer who had been assigned, uh, to CID for a, a period of time. And at, the parents reached back out to us and told us that, that she wanted to talk to us some more. So we got, uh, we, we set up another interview and that is when she disclosed that she was in fact sexual assaulted.
1: And unfortunately, and, and I'm not saying it happened in this case, unfortunately, a lot of times, when these cases go to trial, the defense will try to attack that as them being untruthful, and it simply ignores.
2: Yeah, yeah. in some situations, you're exactly right. That that can come, that can come back and and uh, hurt you. Yeah, absolutely.
1: But but if, if we're honest with each other, I cannot imagine how devastating that type of incident has to be on the victim themselves.
2: Well, and in her case, the reason and it made perfect sense uh, why she didn't why she didn't tell us on the front end, because he told her uh, and that was the other part of the statement that she she told us. He said, if you report this as a burglary, I'll get less time. But if you report this as a rape, he said, when I get out, I'll come back and kill you. He's already
1: been in her house. He's already looked at her stuff. I mean, I think it's reasonable for her to believe that he's he's capable of doing that.
2: Absolutely. And and on top of that, too, uh, you know, we found out later when we interviewed him that he had a police radio. And he went uh, he was sitting at a drive. He was sitting at a drive in a restaurant with a police radio. So he heard the call go out Uh, and it came in as a break in.
1: When that kind of thing happens to a victim. The, the, their mm-hmm. their brain isn't thinking and acting like a normal, you are during normal everyday activities. It's in survival well, mode. I mean, you're doing what, what, what it takes to survive. So so you start the investigation, she comes back and she lets you know uh, th- that she was assaulted. Uh, what happens next with you guys?
2: Well, it, you know, we, we worked that scene, uh, you know, of course we didn't find out about the sexual assault till a, a few days after the fact. And we worked that scene. But you have to understand that when she she was after she was sexually assaulted, he bathed her. He took her into the bathroom and bathed her. And so he washed away any type of forensic evidence that. And so that that was another thing.
1: When you're hearing this stuff and and you hear the terminology that she used during your first interview and and then you're hearing this bathing part. What's going on in your head as the investigator.
2: Well, you know, I'm talking to my colleagues, and I'm like, you know, this this is, uh, you know, I mean, it's very concerning. You know, do we have somebody who's, you know, trained in in law enforcement, or do we have a first responder, or or what, what is it? We don't know. And I, but it was it was very, very strange that we were hearing this this type of terminology and this type of behavior that he was taking the time to take this victim and put her in the bathroom and bathe her and, and clean her up to make sure he disposes of all the evidence. And, you know, and, he, and he's talking about DNA uh, to the to the victim. I mean, it's you know, it, it was uh, it was pretty intense. I mean, we, we weren't we knew we weren't dealing with somebody just, you know. of of average knowledge you know just with average knowledge
1: and and i think for our listeners with just a reminder here that that physical evidence is fragile it disappears over time it degrades over time uh and then when you have intentional acts that are designed to reduce the likelihood of it being found or being used it makes your job as the investigator that much more difficult doesn't it
2: it does, and a lot of people, you know, I mean, they, they you know, they watch the TV shows, they hear about it, and then through Hollywood and, and and through television and culture, and but what they don't realize is, is that that DNA is so fragile that you know we get DNA results back all the time from the TBI crime lab. The problem is, a lot of times, is that it's a partial. You know, you only get a, a partial identification of, a, of it being a male or a female uh, person, uh, or uh, it may be so contaminated that they can't develop a full profile. So, you know, in order to get the whole profile, you've got to, you know, you've got to take some steps to try to preserve that DNA uh, and, hope like, and hope that it hadn't been so contaminated that you can't use it.
1: Absolutely. So so you guys process it as as best you could uh, with the circumstances. Where'd your investigation go after that?
2: Well, it kind of there for a few days we didn't we didn't have any leads. And then, of course, when you have one sexual assault case, you know, that's bad enough. But then you know, what had happened was, was on uh, the fourth day of August, you know, we're still investigating this thing and we're trying to uh, pull in some leads, uh, you know, we utilize at that time, you know, social media was out there, but I mean, as far as like Facebook and whatnot, but, but we didn't have, uh, you know, we we didn't have some of the things that we have today. Uh, what was really weird was, was we had, uh, you know, cause he had, she described him as wearing this mask and that he was heavy set and he gave this description. He had this big stomach and, uh, he was six, you know, described him as six foot, six foot two, something along those lines. And, um, uh, the fourth day of August, I, there was two guys that came in to uh, UTM over here and uh, to Chris Paul, uh, David Ballard and Mickey Keaton, uh, and they they came in and they said, "Hey, we're working a sexual assault that happened down in Memphis." Uh, and it was uh, basically that there was a guy that came in. He was wearing a mask. He was heavy set uh, and had a kind of description. I said, "Well, that's kind of weird." I said, I, "I've got one that happened back a few days ago, and the guy was kind of the same thing." He says, "Well." Uh, what had happened was, is he said, uh, during this sexual assault down in Memphis, uh, he took the, the victim's debit card and he, he got, he went to Jackson, Tennessee and he got, a he got a, a gift card for $25 from a Wendy's. And I was like, okay. And, and he said, and it was used at a Wendy's in Paris. And then there, it was used on the 27th of July for a dollar ninety eight cents at the Wendy's in Martin.
0: Really? Yeah. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy, because you deserve more.
2: And so I was like, okay, so we got a victim's debit card used in Jackson to buy a Wendy's gift card for 25 bucks, and then it's used in Paris, and then at Wendy's, and then it's used in Martin at Wendy's. Well, that was, you know, when I went, well, okay, these may be linked, you know, and we all kind of thought we may be, so we went and told the chief and then brought him up to speed on it. Well, the very next day, August the 5th, we had a sexual assault, uh, very similar to the one that happened, uh, which was, I mean, as the crow flies, it's probably about a mile and a half from where the first victim was sexually assaulted. This lady was assaulted at, at her apartment. So we were in a, you know in the general area of where where this was well it was very similar I mean she was she was cooking hamburgers out on her back porch it was a nice uh, summer afternoon and uh, she was cooking uh, burgers on the back porch her friend had went to another town to go help a friend and she was cooking dinner and she came in to the kitchen and kneeled down to get a pan out from underneath the sink. And she turned around and there was this guy with a gun in her face with a big belly, six foot tall, and he had this mask on, you know? And so, and she, and this was, this was kind of unique. She was the first one as I remember that said that the mask went down below the chin. You know, when you say you got a mask on, maybe it's just a face mask, but this was, this, this mask went down below the chin. And so now I didn't think a whole lot about it at that time. You know, of course, hindsight being your benefactor, you know, and then after what we recovered, well, of course, that makes perfect sense because this is one of those uh, fireman type masks that goes all the way down and, and, and lays on your chest. So, you know, what her, her description of this mask was very accurate. Uh, anyway, he took her upstairs. He tied her up with uh, boot laces. Uh, and he's actually assaulted her. And then he took her and put her in the shower and he bathed her. Uh, and then, you know, he made a very similar statement about, uh, you know, I'm going to give you, you know, 15 minutes before you call anybody. And so
1: well, yeah. it, it's just for, for the sake of context for our listeners. How far away is is Memphis from Martin? Roughly.
2: It's about two hours, about two hour drive.
1: So w- what I think a lot of people don't realize is, is that crime doesn't know jurisdictional boundaries a- and that creates problems for law enforcement.
2: Yeah, it, it does. And but, you know, and it, again, it, it all depends on the uh, type. It, it's kind of the luck of the draw. You know, we had really good people from all these different agencies working with us. You know, David Ballard, Mickey Keaton, uh, you know, our people who I consider to be friends of mine, not only colleagues now, but friends of mine. I met them through this case. And uh, you, you can't ask for two better detectives than them two individuals. I mean, they, they're on top of their game. Uh, they, they know what they're doing. And uh, they were instrumental in helping us uh, uh, catch this guy.
1: Well, uh, just going back to our analogy uh, of investigating a crime is often like doing a, a puzzle. In, in some cases, there mm-hmm. are people, not you, holding pieces of the puzzle it's when they bring those pieces to you that, that this, the story starts to make a little bit more sense. And that's what they in fact did when they came, they brought you some puzzle pieces that you didn't necessarily know were out there before they came.
2: Yeah. It goes right back to that uh, debit card transaction. We had no idea that that, uh, that gift card was used in Martin. And then uh, strangely enough, we didn't know this at the time when we went to the second sexual assault, which actually turned out to be uh, his third sexual assault because He did his first assault. uh, The debit card that we discussed earlier came from an assault that occurred on June the 27th in the Lakeland area. Then he did the the first assault in Martin on the 24th. Well, then he did the second assault in Martin on on the 5th. Well, come to find out, there had been a sexual assault earlier that day on August the 5th. So two in one day. He did two in one day. Sure did. He did one at 1115 in the morning. And then this one occurred, I think, somewhere around about eight, seven or eight o'clock at night.
1: Now, now, as an investigator, uh, it would seem that your concern is starting to be heightened because you have multiple sexual assaults and the frequency at which they're occurring is picking up they're happening more and more frequently so what what happened after you get this particular report of this sexual assault what'd you do then
2: well i can't remember exactly what day it was but when we started getting all this information in we started getting very concerned uh, about this reoccurring again in martin and by that point we had done started putting uh, out information because you know there was uh increasing uh, interest from the public about this word was getting out And of course, the chief and and, uh, some of the command staff, they got together and they started trying to kind of release some information now, uh, which was completely understandable. Uh, about trying to release some information, as far as from a public safety aspect of things, you know, be you know about being more aware. And hey, we've got this. There's this person out there, and we're trying to. And but you can't give out too much information because you don't want to give the, you know give too much information out there for the the uh, for the suspect. The problem was is that you know you reach out to the community when you give out this type of information and you tell them that you need you know their assistance if you see something suspicious if you know somebody that meets us. Uh, uh, meets this description or whatnot. The problem with that is, is that you better be prepared. And I don't think we really were. Uh, I think we knew that we were going to get into, we were going to get a lot of information coming, but I don't really think anybody. And the reason I say that uh, I'm saying this for me, uh, I was the guy that was over there getting the leads that were coming in on a daily basis. Uh, And I'm talking about to the point where we're getting 10 or 12 leads a day uh, about, you know, this guy right here looks like you know he he meets the criteria or the description that's being given by these victims you're trying to manage all these leads because every one of these leads have got to be have, have got to be looked into you know and some of them are credible and some of them are not you know and but and trying to sort through that much information that's coming into a small town police department you know, and putting it where it doesn't get overlooked and trying to manage that information. And of course, you know, at that time, today we would say, well, we're going to, you know, you can use whatever type of uh, app or whatever type of software to help manage this information. But at that time, we didn't have that and we were using a three ring binder, Uh, you know, and I mean, so it's, you know, we were kind of doing it old school and it uh, it was tough. And, uh, and that, that was one thing right there. You talk about a teachable moment. It taught me the value of, of learning it when you start getting that kind of information in uh, on, on how you should be ha- trying to handle it. And then you've got to take the resources that are necessary uh, and have enough detectives and enough investigators to go out and, uh and and run these leads down and check them off if it's credible not credible or whatever so I mean it, it's it's uh, it's mind-boggling
1: that that's probably one of the most challenging parts of an investigation that, that spans jurisdictions and, and spans mm-hmm. uh days on a calendar and, and mm-hmm. victims is just managing the case itself yeah. uh, and and because the, the the calls for service they don't stop coming into your agency that's right <laughs> I mean, that, that and, there's there's still stuff to be done.
2: Yeah, I mean, and there and there, and then there was. I can remember, you know, I, and it's interesting. We're going back on this case because I can remember, like, you know, there were people that would come forward and say, "Well, you know, six months ago, you know." I saw this guy or he, you know, I saw him standing outside my house. You know, I mean, there, there was some suspicious, there there was a suspicious activity that was being reported that occurred back months ago that you go, well, was that, and it could be in the area where some of this has been going on. So you had to kind of run that down too. I mean, so you had to document all that. And it was just, uh, I mean, like I said, it was almost to the point of being overwhelming, And we had, uh, Uh, members of the uh, Memphis Police Department. Uh, They did a good job helping us. Uh, Shelby County Sheriff's Office. Uh, We had... um Uh, Martin Police Department, Wheaton County Sheriff's Department, TBI, uh, they sent resources up here to help us. I hope I'm not overlooking anybody. Uh, They just, you know, everybody worked together and, uh, but you know, everybody's got a different way of doing things. You know, I mean, everybody's trying to get to the same, on the same, uh, get to the same point, but sometimes we do things differently uh, as agencies. So you got to take that under account. And you have to, you know, try to find that happy medium and and try to make it work. And it and it was uh, it was challenging, but we had like I said, we had good people, and that was a blessing. It really was.
1: Well, so so the investigation continues after the the assault at the apartment. Uh, what was the next big thing that happened in the investigation?
2: Well. Um, we we continued to run down leads, and again we had we had plenty to do because we were trying to sort through uh, all the leads of possible suspects. And of course, some of the names, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the rapist name came up in the investigation or early on. You know, I mean, but I mean, there again, his name along with I wished I knew how many people, uh, how many names we had. I've still got that three ring binder, and I would love to know. Uh, how many people? Uh, how many people's names are in that binder? Uh, I ought to look someday and just see. So we were trying to run all these leads down and and we still, the one thing on the second, the sexual assault that really helped us was we had a vehicle description. We did get a vehicle description and, and it was a shot in the dark. What happened was is, uh, one of the the victims neighbor, she looked, he looked out the window and you have to understand the way the, the, the apartment complex was setting when he pulled in. The, the sun reflected off his windshield and went into this guy's apartment and he's laying on the couch and he's, you know, this, and the sun's beating down off his windshield. So he goes and shuts the curtains. Well, as he's going to shut the curtains, he sees this big guy getting out of this, out of this Nissan Titan pickup truck. And it was a silver Nissan Titan and it stuck in his mind and so he contacted us uh i think maybe the next day or, or yeah the next day or maybe the day after and just said you know before this sexual assault happened uh before the police got here i saw a guy in a silver nissan type, and uh, he was a big guy and so that kind of helped so we did get a little bit of information off that so so and then we- what happened after you got that then we moved on forward to the 30, you know, it, there was a little bit of a, a lull, and we went from the 5th to the 30th, and uh, that's when we had the third sexual assault, you see, and it, so we had, uh, we had uh, two sexual assaults in Memphis. And then we had three in Martin, so I think it was five total. And so on the thirtieth is when we actually, to me, I mean, they were all bad. Don't get me wrong; they they were all bad. And I'm not diminishing any any one over the other one. But the the the, the one that happened on the thirtieth that was on a Sunday morning, and to me, that was the most heinous uh, act that he did. And that was where he went to went to Raven Street, and he. Uh, Uh, He was upstairs uh, in the, he broke into the girl's house, and she was just, she was from Middle Tennessee, and she was just moving to, she was just moving to Martin to start going to college, and her parents were moving her in, and they had stayed the night in the house, and uh, had got up that morning and went and eat some breakfast, and when they came back from eating breakfast, uh, he had done broke into the house, and he was upstairs in her bedroom. And so when they come in the front door, he met them. He come down the steps, put a gun in their face and basically took them in the bedroom and made her uh, made her tie her dad's uh, feet together and hands together and set him in the floor. And then he disrobed her mother and then he raped their daughter in front of
1: them. I can tell you something as a dad. As a husband, as a human being, that kind of thing right there, it's difficult for investigators to set that type of anger aside because anger clouds our judgment. Anger, it causes us to miss details that had to be incredibly difficult for you and your people to deal with that. I mean, all of them were incredibly difficult, but that one had to be especially difficult for you.
2: And her and her parents were were two of the sweetest people you'd ever want to meet. That they, they, you know, nobody deserves that. And especially people, you can tell that when you talk to these folks that they they're good people, uh, good Christian people. Uh, they wouldn't, they didn't mistreat anybody and for them to have to sit there and endure that uh it left it left me with a, a just a, a sense of rage uh that he you know that this this guy would do such a thing and it was des- despicable and you know and the father I can remember meeting with him uh, in my office uh, after we processed the scene and, and uh, the next day or two, he he came down and talked and he says, you know, I just can't get over this. He said, I usually carry a handgun with me. He said, but I just didn't have it with me. And and, and so, you know, t- in, in true human fashion, you know, uh, the what ifs came in yep. and him trying to cope with that. And I, I just, as a fellow, you know, I agree with you as a father and as a, a, a husband, the poor guy felt helpless and understandably so. Now, the, the law
1: enforcement professional, though, ha- has to be concerned as well, because these things are becoming more brazen. I mean, it, it takes some cojones to to hold yeah. two additional people and, and do that in front of mm-hmm. them because you're, you're three witnesses now. And, and, yeah. and to do that, I mean, th- this is a very bold Person that is committing these acts.
2: Oh, I agree a hundred ten percent. He he got he got more bold, and the more he did it. But what happened was he, he and he tried to bathe her. You know, he left the the dad tied up, and the and the mom uh, hadn't left them tied up. And he took her to the bathroom, but he didn't bathe her. He just washed her body off with a with a wet rag. But he missed a, 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 some spots on her chest. And so we took her to the hospital, and we got. Her body swabbed for DNA, and then you know she again told us, like he had done in some of the other the other two incidents, that he had flushed the condom down the toilet. Of course, in the other two incidents, uh, we you know I think we try even tried to pull the toilet at the second scene, I believe it was, but we just couldn't we couldn't recover the condom. But this house had set bacon all summer. See, this was in the summertime, so this this house had set vacant all summer. It's a very nice little house that sits down at the bottom of the hill. You know, it, it's it's a very good neighborhood, and then uh, there was nobody in that house all summer. And so, when he flushed that toilet, well, it went, I mean, it, it the town went down the drain, but it didn't go very far. And so, they were able to get the city uh, public works department to come out there with a scope uh, a camera and run it down the sewer pipe. And they found that condom in the, in the sewer line.
1: And, and you, you know, people say, yeah, it's a lucky break. Uh, but good investigators make their own lucky breaks and they do it by being
2: thorough and running
1: everything down. And that sounds like what you guys did there.
2: Yeah, they, uh, yeah, I was, I was interviewing witnesses and, uh, uh, then, uh, Captain Randall Walker, uh, and investigator, Tommy Irwin and uh, chief David Moore they uh you know they were out there trying to help the city uh, recover that recover that evidence and uh, so they cut back i think a couple of feet from where the condom was actually located and, and then was able to to pull it out and uh, we were able to uh, we were able to get a uh, a sample and uh and what had happened was and what we did and that uh, this can it back to that silver nissan type truck when it was on the first, I think, of September. It was a couple of days after that last sexual assault. I got a phone call from Jennifer Owens and she had talked to an individual and I, um, and he's not, a, he's not a member of this department, so I won't, I won't say his name out of respect to him, even though he got, God bless him for giving this information. But he had kind of put this together. He, uh, he had got information, he had heard about the Silver Nissan Titan and he gave us the name of this individual and said, you know, this guy, y- y'all might want to look at him. Uh, and, and they said, no, the reason is, is because, you know, I think he's a volunteer firefighter um, and he and, and he's a heavyset guy. There's probably, and, and I think he may have even said that there's been some complaints on him maybe stalking somebody and he drives a silver Nissan Titan. And so, of course, we heard that, we heard the, the truck and was like, okay. So I, I have to... Uh, give this gentleman credit, uh, Joe Walker, who's retired now from the TBI, probably one of the best investigators that I can think of. I, I tell you, he's, he's one of the best there is, and uh, he sat down and he wrote a search warrant for this individual's DNA. I checked with Shelby County, the detectives that we had down there, and you talk about having contacts. Uh, they ran him through their database and they found out that he was a former uh, volunteer jailer. Uh, he was a reserve police officer in another town down there. Uh, so, he had law enforcement experience. and. Uh, they, uh, there, there was a whole list of stuff that they had there. As a matter of fact, there was a case from 2007 where he was stalking a cheerleader down in, allegedly, down in Memphis. This guy had a lot of criteria that we were very interested in, and I'm sure there's some other things that I'm not remembering about it. But I just remember that silver Nissan Titan pickup truck was very instrumental in us getting getting that search warrant. So anyway, long story short, we, we convened down here. That uh, I got that phone call about 9 o'clock, 9.15 We convened down at the police department, and we typed up that search warrant. And then by 5 o'clock in the morning, we were on his doorstep in Gleason. We knocked on the door. He lived with his parents, and we knocked on the door and told him who we were and what we needed. And he didn't think he wanted – he basically didn't want to comply with it. And so uh, we showed him we had a search warrant, and we took a a mucus swab of his DNA and sent it, and by that night, we had a match. And once
1: you get the match – what happens then?
2: Well, uh, we found out while we were, we, we actually sat on the house. Uh, until, I mean, like we stayed on him, we sat right there and we let him come and go as he ple- pleased, but we followed him. You know, he, he left a couple of times and I followed him. Uh, we didn't restrict his movement, but we found out, uh, that he had, uh, there was a storage, uh, bin rented in McKenzie, Tennessee. We wrote a search warrant for it. And, um, we got in there and we found a lot of like the house on Raven street. He he stole her bicycle, uh, her ID and things of that nature. And we found, uh, in, in that storage building, we found, I, if my memory serves me right. I think we found, uh, items that belong to all sexual assault victims.
1: And as an investigator, it, it, it's, it's coming together. You're starting to see the bigger picture. The pieces are falling together. Uh, I, I'm going to assume that you guys went and made an arrest at some point.
2: We did. We arrested him. And uh, after we got him put in jail, um, you know, uh, we kind of share. And I, I want not take the time to, to, to say this because this, this has been a this past week has been a very sad week for us. A member of this team. And it's ironic that we're having this discussion right now because a member of our team that, that helped arrest this rapist uh, investigator or Captain Marty Plunk, who was an investigator with the. County kind of Sheriff's Department. Uh, he actually Tuck reached out to him while he was in jail, and he wanted to talk to Captain Plunk uh, about uh, some issues concerning the case. And so uh, he, uh, Captain Plunk, in, uh, in, interviewed him, and he he confessed to uh some of these sexual assaults and um we went back and interviewed him a few days later and he he confessed to just about everything and it was enough to get him locked up but we uh, captain plunk passed away uh, on, on november the 12th and uh uh you know captain plunk was instrumental in helping us solve his case and uh, and like i said i miss him and we loved him and and uh, we we attended his funeral saturday so it's uh
1: uh, I'm very, very sorry for your loss, and, and I will say that uh, when we lose somebody like that, at least we know they lived a life that mattered, it, because because the work that he did, it mattered not only to, to the agency, but to the community and, and to the victims, it matters
2: yes. absolutely yeah they they don't come no better than than captain marty pluck he was he was and he was right there from the start uh, when we called him and said you know sheriff Wilson let us uh, let him let us uh, bar him uh, for the duration of this case and he was uh, he, he was really he just did a great job and and uh, he's been a long lifetime friend and colleague of mine and and uh, just miss him miss him greatly.
1: now the confession, you get the confession. Uh, did the case go to trial?
2: Uh, there was some hearings on it, uh, but uh, it never went to a jury trial. It never went to a jury trial. Uh, he basically pled, and I believe if my memory serves me right, I think he pled to 60 years. If my memory right.
1: I believe you're correct. And, and that goes back to what you talked about earlier, that that the power of doing a complete and thorough investigation and getting those confessions and building such a strong case so that they don't go to trial because you don't want to get that wild card on the jury. But more importantly, uh, our victims aren't re victimized having to get uh, up there on the stand and, and, tell the story again.
2: Yeah. That's, that's, that's the one thing right there is, is trying to build the case good enough. You know, I, I tell my guys, and i this is something I always, now this is just me. I, I, I'm not speaking for anybody else. Uh, I've always tried to, to, to write a report, where a district attorney could, could read it and not have a single question. Now, that is an impossibility, uh, and th- you can never obtain that goal, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with shooting for it, you know, and that's, what, that's the way I feel. But,
1: and I couldn't agree with you more, and I would also put out there, uh, it's also writing those reports that are seemingly insignificant in an appropriate fashion mm-hmm. because you never know when that's going to end up being a piece of somebody else's puzzle. And it may not seem important at the time, but that information—the the the, the the silver Nissan—that guy probably never had it in his mind that was going to be something important. But it turned out to be daggone important.
2: That's right. As a matter of fact, it was a, it was a really big part of that case, and it uh, especially writing that search warrant. I mean, as a matter of fact, uh, the uh, the judge that signed it—he didn't tell me this, but it was told me later on that one of the reasons that he signed that that search warrant was because of that silver Nissan type because it isolated that one particular individual. I Granted, they make more than one. There's more than one silver Nissan out there. But yet, when you put that with the other facts of the case and you build your search warrant, the totality of it, that was one thing that the judge really liked in that search
1: warrant. Well, just a couple of questions here to kind of wrap the story up, if we could. Uh, how did he get or who gave him the name, the nickname, the Big Belly Rapist? Where did that come from?
2: I, you know, I don't know uh, that. I wished I, I. really wished I knew. Um, I, I. I just know that I think. I think that kind of got out into the news media. I know that there was a composite sketch put out. With the person with the hoop with a the, the person wearing the hood, uh, and it was basically used as a, you know, uh, an education tool for the public to say this is what we're dealing with, and we don't have any descriptors other than this mask, and it made it all the way to the Jay Leno show. You know? Really, so of course, they were used using- yes, they, they did, and uh, I actually saw the clip where Jay Leno was holding the, our composite. And they're like, Have you seen this man? That one of those kind of things. Uh, but where the big belly rapist guy came in, I, I want to take the news media, I may give it to him, but I'm not really sure.
1: Yeah, Brent and I were talking uh, before uh, we started recording about uh, how how nice it is when they're given a nickname that isn't flattering because the truth of the matter is, these guys are douchebags you know and not yeah. they don't, they don't yeah. deserve anything good and
2: apparently i don't think uh, i don't think he liked that name because on the last case that he did uh, i remember i think he wrote it on lipstick it was on a mirror he went in there into her bedroom and he put uh, too late bb yeah, and really? so you know God. yeah he, so he was making it you know, like he was getting personal with him and so i don't really think he liked that like that name But I'm okay with that.
1: I'm perfectly fine with that. Another thing I saw when I was doing the research for the podcast today was that at some point after he was already in prison, he called up one of the news stations and was complaining about the lack of treatment that he is receiving for his uh, his sex offender uh, tendencies. And, And there was a quote he said, because he wants to live. And I quote here a productive life the best I can while in prison. And I just found it ironic that he's worried about that treatment after the fact.
2: Yeah, I I don't know. I, I, I had I didn't I never had did hear that, but uh, you know, like I said, it you know, to me it's just it never ceases to amaze me how people, you know, that go out here and, and do those types of acts to, and, and these these crimes it just never ceases to amaze me what they may do. And I mean it's you know, they've just trampled on the rights of other people and and uh, and traumatized people and and it's you know, it's just such a shame. Such a shame. That's that's all.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. And Brent, um, it never ceases to amaze me the quality of people that we have in this profession, the the work, the professionalism, the dedication. And in this case, right here, we, we have we have a, a a criminal that was trying to, to be a part of the profession. And mm-hmm. if there's one thing that that people in this profession will not, cannot tolerate, it's someone. Who breaks the law and when they do it our people go after them because it's the right thing to do and we don't want anybody to tarnish the badge and and so captain i appreciate you being here today man i appreciate you sharing the story i want to say again how sorry i am for your loss uh, because those people that make impact like that they simply can't be replaced and so we're we're very sorry for your loss but we do appreciate you sharing the story today brent it was everything. I was hoping it was going to be and more.
0: And I think it's important from uh, my point of view, I my wife, again, worked in Martin. Her friends were worried. She was worried. And so we got, like Captain Hattler said, a minimal information, just the information they're going to put out. So it's good to go back after the fact and see how diligently they were working behind the scenes. They were continually working to get this guy put away. And it's, it's really neat to see the perspective from the inner workings of the police department.
1: I, I tell you what, when you, hear, when you hear the amount of work, and I mean, we heard a blurb. I mean, I would be willing to bet that there, there are numerous three ring binders because again, all those leads have to be run down because it's not just a matter of finding the guilty, it's about clearing the innocent. And, and that right there it comes it comes at a price i mean it becomes an obsession while you're in the middle of it and, and it can it can start to have effect on your psyche it certainly has effect on your sleep it has effect on your eating it, it have to be you have to guard against the effects that it has on your family but they still do the job and, and i just think that's
0: incredibly honorable yeah i think that's why it's important to do this this type of podcast is hear their point of view
2: well, we, we, uh, we appreciate, you know, we appreciate the public support and, and again, it goes back to, you know, we had a lot of good people, uh, from multiple agencies, uh, uh helping us with that case and, and, and we had good, strong leadership and, and that's, uh, that's what it takes. And, uh, like I said, uh, the, the, the chief Moore uh, was at the tip of the spear and, and we like I said, we, we were just trying to do the best we could with the, what we had. And, uh you know, and gladly it, it, it turned out it turned out well
0: well captain we appreciate you uh, taking time to talk with us about this case really interesting to hear the inner workings of it and i uh, know you're very busy with your uh, new promotion and also i think we're uh, carving out some time for us today. thank you sir i appreciate
2: you